Hi, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of the Shop Notes podcast. Today is episode number 121. I'm your host, Phil Huber, joined by Logan Whitmer and special guest Dylan Baker, design editor at Woodsmith Magazine. On today's episode, we are going to talk about woodworking influences as well as side hustles. Hope you enjoy today's show. Want to do a special promotional message here from Shaper Tools. They're the makers of the Shaper Origin. It's the handheld CNC router that brings digital precision to the craft of woodworking. You could tackle joinery, cabinetry, hardware installation, and more with speed and precision. And you could try it risk-free in your shop for 30 days. Visit shapertools.com to learn more. All right. So today, uh, last week, we talked about my decision not to have a table saw in my shop, of which there were several comments that uh, <laughs> ran the gamut, as you might imagine. So uh, I would just want to read a couple of them here. Jim writes, I have a bandsaw and a circular saw with guide tracks. I've said goodbye to the table saw, the router table, and the drill press. Also, wow. I don't have a planer or a jointer. I have a collection of very good hand saws and planes. My favorite planes are all wooden-bodied, either the EC Emmerich or hand-built by me. They're much lighter to use for long periods, and the Emmerich and Hawk blades sharpen to a very keen edge and hold it. There's nothing I am restricted from doing, nothing I find I can't do, and I enjoy the relatively quiet and mostly dust-free environment. Don writes, What a waste of hot air. I've been a carpenter since I was 13, and I'm now 73, and still working as a cabinet maker plus solid surface fabricator and installer. My table saw is and always will be my mainstay. So, and then one other guy wrote, uh, let's see. Phil talked about his enjoyment of using hand tools, which prompted me to wonder what TV or other woodworkers influenced you guys the most. Roy Underhill and Norm Abram influenced me equally, leading to no preference of hand tools or power tools. I simply use what makes the most sense. And I do have a table saw and a track saw. Hmm. So that's kind of where I thought we'd get started with today's episode was who are the woodworkers that have influenced your growth or development as a woodworker and go uh well i have to think on this or i'm just gonna ramble which i'm probably gonna ramble anyways so why don't you go ahead and start and i'll come up with a good ramble yeah that's an unintended consequence of podcasting anyway so <laughs> um <laughs> Well, definitely, I think the earliest exposure for me was, you know, probably aligns with the last comment. You know, I grew up watching Roy Underhill on PBS and, uh, you know, even watch, watching the Woodsmith um, show early on. Um, and then I also had the good fortune of having a grandfather who was uh, an incredible carver. So, again, I was just kind of always around those sort of things, um, even uh, this old house and... Uh, Oh, what was the other one? Um, um, oh, the Yankee workshop with Norm Abram. So, you know, I'm a PBS kid. And so I was kind of first exposed um, by watching those and then being around my grandfather. But I think that a lot of my more, um, I would say, influential in terms of just style and the way I think about designing furniture comes from or, or began in college. Uh, I had a couple of professors that were, um, one didn't have a strong woodworking background, but, uh, when the other one was on leave, he kind of took over that role and it was always kind of a, a passion of his. And so he went to the college of the Redwoods trained at, uh, under Krenov and he ended up teaching woodworking for an extended period of time until Chris Martin, who was, um, who Logan actually knows was my furniture design teacher at Iowa state. And, uh, you know, his style and then just, uh, I would say the two studio furniture makers that were coming out of probably like the 60s, 70s and 80s, uh, Wendell Castle and Gary Knox Bennett, RIP to both, um, were pretty influential, I think, in just kind of sparking that interest in uh, 
building furniture, but also treating furniture like art too. So that I think it was um, a concept that was always kind of hanging in the balance for me was, again, I've, I've touched on this a little bit about just justifying your art. And I like just the utilitarian aspect and the functionality of, you know, fusing furniture and art together. And I think those guys did it exceptionally well. And we're kind of pushing the boundary in terms of, you know, what is, what is furniture? What is art? Why can't they be both? Um, and we're kind of, I would say, kind of renegades in their own way. Um, but those are probably the, the main people that I, I think about uh, most frequently. All right. Do you, how do you, well, let's, uh, I'll let Logan answer his two for his influences now that he's had ample time to come up with a ramble. I've just been watching birds. <laughs> um, the, I would say, I, I wouldn't say that there was any one woodworker necessarily that I take a lot of influence from. Like, of course, everybody, everybody's work ends up reflecting themselves and what they enjoy. So I would say, I mean, if I'm going to say I watched somebody and kind of followed their work for a long time, um, David Marks is definitely on that list, which consequently I'm flying out to his place on Sunday this week. Um, so that'll be super cool. I get a fanboy. It's going to be fun. Um, I, as a whole, I'm just going to say the, the shaker style is my big, I mean, you know, not, not to pin it on any one woodworker, but I just enjoy the shaker style, you know, like it's the simplicity of that design, the straightforward construction, um, and I like the mentality that the shakers have of um, something is perfect as long as it completes its function. So as long as it does what it's intended to do, it's perfect. doesn't matter about the construction or anything. So, um, you know, it, woodworking heroes, that's hard for me to say. I'm putting Dave Marks in that category. I mean, of course, there are people that are really in-depth with the Shaker um, style. Chris Bexford, you know, there's a lot of people that do that style and do it very, very well that I very, I enjoy their work. Um, okay, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retrace everything I just said. Now, I'm not going to say that um, he's not necessarily a furniture maker, but... Um, Bill Carter is definitely one of my heroes as far as the woodworking world goes. Now he's a tool maker. He is a, he is a cabinet maker and carpenter, um, by trade. Um, but he also, uh, he's, he's really well known as a tool, as a tool maker. So that's kind of, I'm going to, I'm going to put Bill Carter and David Marks in the same category. So. If I was going to say I had woodworking idols, I'm not going to necessarily say they're my influences, but they're my idols. So, You don't have shrines at your house where you put out an offering? No. And... no, not really. Well, I mean, I think there's... I think there's different ways of looking at it, too, because I think there... Mm -hmm. I, and the, listening to Dylan talk made me think that there's probably influences that we have in the sense of opening the door to woodworking, you know, like to get you started. And it, sure. it sounds like yes. that's how, that's how Norm and Roy were for Dylan, even though he's maybe not, you're maybe not directly influenced by their style, so to speak. Sure. But then you mm -hmm. have other influences in the sense that, uh, you know, whether it's design or tooling or construction choices that will influence how you build your projects. You know, that you're going to assemble a lot of those ingredients, so to speak, and kind of come up with your own, with your own soup on what, on what, on what makes a project look good. Yeah. It's almost kind of like a permission, you know, not that anyone thinks as an adult, you need permission to do anything, but it is, those are just, again, examples that you're kind of <laughs> g 
going back to to uh, again, you're not exactly extracting a, the particular style. It's just you're knowing that it's like creating an inventory of what's acceptable and what's been done, and kind of trying to navigate uh, that. And um, again, if you're if you're constantly creating, designing stuff, you're you're never you never want to be short of th- that permission or knowing that you know what's possible. So because. You definitely do get the fatigue. I can tell you that I'm, I'm suffering from it right now on a particular project. So it's nice to look back and and see what's been done before you. <laughs> yeah, because I would think, you know, like when I, you know, thinking about those, definitely I watched a lot of Norm Abram. Uh, our PBS station didn't have or it wasn't on at a time that I was watching Roy that much. When I did watch him, it was always kind of fun, but. Uh, uh, it was just interesting to watch Norm work because it it opened up the sense of oh like you can do that and gave me that option Uh, my dad was a big influence on getting me started just because nothing got in his way of doing stuff and building projects and he didn't have Norm's shop full of tools but what he did have he still used and got projects mm-hmm. built you know yeah so, so but phil as i say i have to ask you what was your sense of like joy and wonderment when you saw the new yankee workshop go from that black and white episode to the first color episode <laughs> <laughs> well it was like when i was, was like in- oh well that's that color what yeah they call it they call it's those like when talkies. i was in the theater and watched uh watched uh wizard of oz too that was it was along those very same lines vaudevillian woodworking yeah yeah oh, i couldn't resist that i mean were there any were there any other you know again outside of we've been we've been given norm a lot of praise today um yeah. but you know, outside of that, as you kind of grew into it, um, are there any other particular people that you maybe default to when you're, you know, generating project ideas or just kind of, you know, trying to keep things fresh in your mind? Yeah. So, you know, like my dad subscribed to Woodsmith and Shop Notes. So, I mean, that design aesthetic was with me for a long time. Yeah, you were indoctrinated at a young age. Right, (laughs) right. So it's only very... It's it's very the circle is now complete mm-hmm. that I'm working at Woodsmith, but uh, you know, but that time Woodsmith was heavily had a lot of shop, had a lot of uh, shaker projects in it, mm. so I mm-hmm. understand Logan's interest there. Um, since getting into woodworking deeper um, after college. And then starting here, like I, I was really influenced, you know, um, Christian Bexford is a good one. Uh, Michael fortune, just mm. in his construction techniques. Yeah, I don't know great. that mm-hmm. his, his style is a little out there for me, but there's a mm. lot of stuff that I've learned from him in terms of, uh, methods of work. Yeah, for sure. And approaches to, to different things. Um, and then I've I've gone in waves too, where there's just been, you know, I think a lot of woodworkers go through a craftsman slash arts and crafts phase. I think because of it shares a lot of similarities with shaker stuff in that it's heavily rectilinear or can be, mm-hmm. um, and so the joinery and construction is pretty straightforward on stuff, and you can but that provides a pretty big sandbox to build stuff in too. Yeah. Um, I've always liked once I got to know or interested in him was, um, Tay Frid, the guy from Mm -hmm. the kind of a Danish modern guy that was at fine woodworking for a long time early on. Uh, Steve Latta and his kind of federal, styles you know there's a lot of fun stuff in the federal period 
I, I ended up finding, I don't know that I can name, oh, uh, Sam Maloof. I really, like everybody thinks of him in terms of his, you know, very sculptural flowing chairs, but I like the look of a lot of his case pieces and tables and benches that he's done. And I think there's, there's more room for exploration in that area than to just do, you know, another quote unquote sculpted rocker kind of thing. Yeah, I think Warren Estrick kind of falls in that same category. I mean, he would have predated uh, Sam Maloof, but again, I think they're yeah that combining you know just very traditional joinery and getting these pieces together, but then again, relying heavily on on sculpting, whether it be with pneumatic tools or hand tools, um, where they do become very gestural and kind of just an extension of it's like a three D drawing almost. Right. Um, yeah. Um probably in the last few years after quite a number of years of kind of trying to dismiss him a little bit in my own head. Uh, and you and I have talked about this Dylan is James Krenoff. Sure. Cause I think, well, in my own woodworking journey early on to me, it was about building projects and there's a contemplative side of people like Krenoff and Nakashima and mm -hmm. whatever that uh, dives heavier into philosophy, I guess, or I don't know, the spiritual side of woodworking. Yeah. And definitely. that just kind of that missed, this just blew past me in the, in the practical era that I was working in. To your point. I, yeah. A lot of their stuff has always just been, very stuff like they're very recognizably like George Nakashima pieces are George Nakashima pieces, even right. though every, everybody today has some form of a live edge or waterfall table or something like that. Yeah. Um, but same goes for Krenov. I mean, I, it'd be easy for anybody to recognize which one's a Krenov. And if you can't quite tell in a photograph, if you see it in person, you know, because they're about four feet tall. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they were definitely more kind of mission and, philosophy driven which again there's absolutely nothing wrong with that it kind of justifies right. the means right yeah so i guess i fall more under the category of i would like to build pieces based on somebody else's work but not necessarily try to adopt some of their styles you know what i mean now yeah shaker as a whole i guess maybe um i i just enjoy that minimalist type thing uh but i also follow the same way with turning um you know because there are many different turners that have very unique styles like there are um you can show pieces from well-known turners and i could probably point out who turned it because i know those people's styles um the piece over phil's shoulder that big green one uh, is actually um, based on a piece that Cindy Drozda has done. Uh, I meant that one. Uh, you know, and and Cindy Drozda has a very unique, particular style. Um, it's not that, you know, I'm not going to say she's an influence. It's just I want to try to turn some of those type of pieces um, just to kind of see what the technique is and what the mentality. I guess that I guess that's where some of what you guys are talking about comes in is I want to see where her mentality is when looking at a piece and say, Oh, here's how I see I can, what I can do with it. Um, mm -hmm. but not necessarily adapt that to my style. Now, 20 years down the road, will my style be a derivative of a lot of these people that I've tried to emulate pieces from maybe. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I feel like I am the only woodworker in the world that has never watched Norm Abram. Oh, yeah? <clears throat> never. Like, I mean, like, a clip here and there, never remember watching a episode of the New Yankee, Yankee Workshop, ever. It takes a lot of guts to admit. Know, just never did. So, you know, we've talked about past influences. Are there people that you continue to follow now? I mean, because, you know, like Dylan and I and Logan, I mean, we've talked about people that are long dead other than bill carter and david marks wow and david marks yeah there. wow phil geez 
I mean, I think I think there are, but the problem is, like, how? I don't know. How? That to me, that's a weird question because it's like the people today have been influenced by the people of yesterday, right? I guess I also wonder. So it's you know the the benefit the both the benefit and detriment of our current age is the fact that we have access to so many different furniture yeah. makers and designers but also it's such a passing connection you know that it's mm-hmm. you know on the one side you get a, a wider exposure on the downside it's very catalogy instagram just images flipping yes. past rather than you know reading or concentrating on any one particular person or or style. Yeah. I don't know. We actually did. I don't know if it was a full article that we did with her or, um, but Danielle Rose bird. Yeah. She does, she does those carvings. She just had a book come out. Um, I, I find her work pretty inspiring. It's, it's interesting because it's kind of a cross between, you know, carving, but you know, she, she's not really limited to just like these vessels. Like she's always kind of changing the form, which I think is just kind of warranted by the, just the type of carving she does where these things actually look like artifacts. And then, you know, she uses a lot of color in her work too. Um, sure. And I think a part of it too is one, like she's young, she's doing it, she's successful, but it's also just such a departure from most of the stuff that I do. I mean, if I was say I had some passion project or just something I wanted to build outside of work, I, I hardly ever think about carving anything. Um, and I think sometimes you just kind of have to force yourself to do these disciplines because I, I more times than not, if I do, I'm just surprised by how much I really enjoy doing it. And it's just something that's been tabled for so long. You know, we've got a project coming up that we're doing some marketry work, which I don't know if we've ever done marketry. And if we did, we've probably done it on a really limited scale. Um, I personally have done none. Um, so again, it's just an opportunity to really dive into a, a discipline within woodworking that, um, again, that we're, we're not as familiar with. So again, usually people that are doing stuff that's kind of contrasted to mine and, uh, another person I look at a lot and I did a project for pop wood. I think it's probably been a, over well over a year now. Um, my sense of time isn't great, but, <laughs> um, I did a project where it was a sheet of plywood. I did a plywood chair and it was trying to limit the amount of waste on the piece of plywood. And I was able to get two of this chair out of one four by eight sheet. Um, And that was a a directive or project that was assigned to me in school. But there's a guy that has a company called F and Furniture and he does these plywood pieces of furniture that are anywhere from I think pretty much like he tries to stay within like 98 to 99% use of the board and they're all CNC'd. So he doesn't have to worry about, you know, circular saw cut pass like we did on ours. Um, but it's just a different way of thinking about constructing something. A lot of the design is based on using as much of the material as possible and, and, and limiting your amount of waste. So it's just, an, a, again, an interesting way of thinking about um, the projects or the type of work you're doing. Um, I also just think Baltic birch and plywood furniture is really cool. So, but I think those are two current people that come to mind for me, at least. Yeah, I would see, I would say from a woodworking standpoint, there isn't anybody that like, I, in, I enjoy and recognize that everybody's style is different and I appreciate each in their own way. But I want to say anybody like currently today I follow super closely um, and kind of make sure I'm always, you know, seeing what they're doing. Not from a furniture standpoint, um, from a turning standpoint, um, there's a guy out in Ireland. His name's Pat Carroll. Um, I've probably mentioned him in the past um, and I'm going to be shooting some projects with him here in August, I believe. Um and Pat's one of those that I think uh, his work 30 years from now will really stand out. Um, Pat Carroll and uh, Nick Agar. Um, Nick is down in, Nick's from uh, from England. He currently lives in the States, uh, Georgia, South Carolina, somewhere over there. Um, and they are, both of them, 
uh, Nick and Pat are both very um, artistic type turners. Um, so they kind of do like studio type work. Um, they're not they're not a Richard Raffin or a, a you know Mike Mahoney or anybody that's doing like bowls or a, you know Glenn Lucas. They're not they're not mass producing bowls. They're not production turners. They're more of studio pieces where their their turning may have them. They may have, you know, 80 hours in a turning because a lot of it is a lot of, you know, pyromancy or, you know, stuff, you know, the pyrography on it after it's been done and, you know, whatever. Um, so th- those are two guys that I, I follow pretty closely from a turning standpoint. Okay. I mean, I like Daniel Rosebird stuff. Uh I like what I like seeing Nancy Hiller's work in terms of how she um, works within styles, you know, like her cabinetry work is informed by the house that it sits in. So I don't know that she, you know, you can't necessarily line up all of her pieces and be like, this is the Nancy Hiller style, but she knows how to interpret different styles and work within them. Um, I mean, I fanboy uh, Dave Fisher, who's a teacher and a carver, you know, and I, and I like to do that kind of carving stuff, but I don't know. And my stuff is definitely influenced by that because I like his style, but I'm not necessarily trying to copy it per se. It's just those, his, you know, tooling choices and techniques really appeal to me and I want to see, you know, what I can do with it, within it, with it that way, especially as a, as a counterpoint to some of my furniture work, you know, it's just a different change of pace. Like you were saying, Dylan, about having something that's just unique and it, you know, pushes you in a different direction. Yeah. It's just, it's always about kind of, uh, well, certainly redefining, but just trying to kind of change the language and figure out, you know, instead of it's because it's really easy just to kind of focus on one thing and try and to, again, when we're going through these matrices to try and decide which projects go in our issues to make sure we have the most kind of comprehensive issue. Um, it's really easy to just kind of get hung up on one thing. And so you kind of have to just remain receptive yeah. I mean, re- receptive is probably the best word. I mean, again, you're just, it's really easy to get stuck. And so you need to immerse yourself in several different things to kind of get yourself in a place where you can make some, you know, some concrete decisions about your project. So, yeah. So I think for me, it's really fun to be able to have that access to a wide variety of styles and mm-hmm. construction choices. But then also I enjoy being able to pause and, uh, really get into a specific designer or design school or something like that to learn more about it. You know, like what are the elements that came up with it? But so today's episode is brought to you by Shaper Tools. They're the makers of the Shaper Origin, the handheld CNC router that brings digital precision to the craft of woodworking. You could tackle joinery, cabinetry, hardware installation, and more with speed and precision. You could try it risk-free in your shop for 30 days. Visit shapertools.com to learn more. Anyway, switching gears a little bit, uh, since both of you are on the episode, what I wanted to talk a little bit about, and I think a lot of woodworkers think about, dream about to a certain extent, is making some money from your woodworking rather than just spending money on your woodworking. And I, th- I, th- I thought you were going to say the difference between Dylan and Logan. Yeah. We, we can go over that too. I, just, <laughs> right. Just differentiating that we are two separate people. What? Yeah. Cause what most even people, though we get... <laughs> what's really funny is there's kind of a little bit of an inside joke here at Woodsmith is Dylan and Logan often get called Logan and Dylan for reasons that are very <laughs> mystifying. And yet, quite humorous because you guys are don't sound alike you don't really look alike and i think it happened was with john and i and then all of a sudden it was like other people without us saying a word so if you're watching on the youtubes you can see that 
Logan and Dylan are essentially twins, separated from birth. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just really funny to me how that how that happened. And it like transcends brands. Like oh yeah, like the Woodsmith brand. People do it that we work with every day. Like I'll walk in the studio and John will turn around and be like, "Hey, Dylan. I mean, Logan. Like." John, I sit next to you, man. But then, like, somebody from accounting does it. And it's like, really? Like, we're... I mean, at this point, it's just humorous. <laughs> like, well, it's clearly a systemic issue. I thought that's too. where you were going with people. People <laughs> dream about it, and they think about it, and yeah, they're just yeah. mystified by how we are two separate people. They don't understand it. Yeah. So anyway, what I wanted to talk about with uh, you guys is uh, you have full-time jobs here. But you also do various side hustles. And I just wanted you both to have the opportunity to talk about your side hustles in the way of, you know, how do you look at it? Um, you know, is it more for your enjoyment of the craft or to make some money on the side or, you know, and how you go about, you know, choosing what you do in order to to do that? Well, I think it's definitely a level of freedom that only really comes along with having a full-time job because, you know, you're not really reliant on the income from the quote-unquote side hustle. Um, I don't know how often Logan does sawmilling stuff, but I mean, I just have, as of recently, been hitting a little bit of a stride with having, you know, somewhat consistent work. But I, I do... I will say that it comes with a great freedom of being able to turn things down that you just either one don't want to do, you don't have time to do, or it's just not really worth your while. And really it takes doing a lot of these things to kind of figure that out. And Logan and I talk about it quite a bit because <laughs> we, we find ourselves in the shop cursing ourselves or something we're working on. Like, you know, why do we keep doing this? We're gluttons for punishment. Um, but you know, in, a lot of the work that I get now is just, I think it comes out of, you know, when I was working somewhat full-time for myself out of college. And so people kind of through knowing people and doing stuff for people in the past work has kind of trickled or found its way back into my life. And, um, I like to stick with more furniture oriented projects. I don't really like doing furniture repair work. If it's something that I feel like I can do fairly easily and isn't tedious and time consuming, I'll take it on or if I feel like it's a, a little bit of a challenge and it'd be fun to um, to tackle, I'll do it. Um, I really try to stay away from doing like fabrication or uh, like contractor style work. I'm not against it by any means. I, I'm not, I don't think highly of myself. It's just, um, it's just something I don't really desire to do and there's enough people out there that can do it. Now, if it's something I think I can crank out in a weekend, Again, a lot of it is just kind of project contingent, but I, I typically try to stay away from anything where I'm not really designing anything or it's not um, a, a challenge, I guess, worth for me to take on. You know, I've done sure. done some refinishing work, which, you know, short of doing a tabletop isn't really that fun, but it is kind of cool to mess around with the, the chemistry of finishes and kind of see how tinting lacquer or uh, doing uh, sealers and that sort of thing. Stuff that we don't really do a ton for the magazine. Usually it's like we have a, a, a stain and then we use catalyzed lacquer, which is, it works fine. It photographs well. Um, so again, it, it's it's kind of like on a case by case basis, but it does, I will say I'm now working um, full time as a you know designer and builder for the magazine, it's, uh, you know, uh, given me at least the freedom to kind of pick and choose what I want to do. Cause I, I I'll do like three projects in a row and then I just swear off that I'm never going to do that stuff again, you know? And then <laughs> a couple months go by and somebody wants me to do something. I'm like, all right, I'll do it. You know, <laughs> yeah. but I say, how do you price your, your work then? Like if, if you're doing, cause I mean, I know, I know the type of stuff you've been doing for people. Um, so how do you how do you give somebody a price? Because you're doing some some versions of commercial work as far as doing work for commercial spaces, restaurants, bars, stuff like that. How do you price that type of stuff? Well, I, I definitely underbid my work uh, just because I think it's diff. I you know we all we all deal with this. It's just 
we have an idea of what our time is worth, but try explaining that to somebody who doesn't do any sort of woodworking or doesn't have any sort I don't want to say they don't have another talent, but maybe they don't have another way of generating revenue, whether they're in some sort of craft or trade. So it's a, it's a hard conversation to have, you know, there's people that obviously are, are of means and, you know, the money factor isn't that much of a hurdle. There's also people that are at very affluent too, that they're really tight with money and it's hard to, to explain to them, you know, um, but it, back to your back to your point logan um you know if i'm doing smaller stuff so a lot of times if i'm doing like chop boards or cutting boards and stuff for people for gifts like that, those types of items i'll typically charge per item um, if i'm doing a lot of the fabrication work stuff i've been doing for a couple of the restaurants in town i usually of course charge for all the materials but then i just do it on an hourly basis um, i'm sure i end up spending a little bit of extra time and you know lo lose a little bit of money that way but um yeah it's it's smaller projects it's usually by the project or per project and then you know larger stuff like the dj booth i did and the flower boxes i basically just yep. did by the hour it's just easier to do it that way um because it's being built for the first time so what is it worth well it's worth what someone else is willing to pay yeah. for it so yeah that's true. <laughs> so like well it's interesting because i don't take on commission pieces hardly ever like I just don't. I don't care to. But but you had tried at one point. Oh, right? I yeah, I've done them. Um, I, I I like I don't. My my preference is not to do them. Um, and my preference has always been not to do them. Um, I will if I will if there is a an interest there. If it's for a friend, it has to tick all these boxes. If I have an interest in it. If it's for a friend, and I don't think it's going to soak up an absolute boatload of time, then I will. Um, I prefer not to do furniture projects. Um, I, I guess I'm in the position, I think we're all in the position that anything we do outside of work, we don't need to do. Like, we don't need this the supplemental income sure. off of it. Um, so, so it's never, it's never one of those like for money things or I'm doing it for the money. It's always one of those, like I'm doing it because like I said, it's for a friend, it's for somebody I know it's, um, it's an interesting challenge, I guess that that's the bigger thing is it just is an interesting challenge to me. Um, if, if I'm going to do something outside of the day-to-day -day work that we do, um, you know, my, my quote side hustle then is sawmilling. Um, I have been too busy the last several months to, I, I mean, I, I keep getting suckered into doing these sawmilling jobs because, Oh, Hey, somebody referred you to me cause they, cause you <laughs> saw mill for them and, stuff and i i've been turning them down like i just don't have the time to go do it um if you know i will sawmill for myself still and i sawmill to keep an inventory of lumber here and then that's kind of my side hustle now that's my preference for my side hustle is going to is selling lumber um because i can cut sure. it on my time i can let it dry i can bring it to the kiln on my time um, and then when it's dry and ready and sitting here, I could sell it on my time. So I can do it. I can do it, um, burden free, I guess. So like, I don't have that. I hate that weight of a project sitting on me. You know what I mean? It's just like an encumbrance. It, yeah. it is. Um, I don't, I don't like the feeling of obligation with a project. Um, now with that being said, the most and that's why I asked how you how you um, price your your stuff, Dylan. Because to me, the best bang for my buck. Is, so if I'm if I'm if I'm looking at sawmilling, um, or if I'm looking at my side hustles, I'm making the least money by doing commission pieces. Um, because what I put into it per hour and what I'm going to get out of it is low. Um, I'm looking at opportunity cost at that point. If I'm, if I'm looking at a furniture piece, that's going to cost, you know, take me 10 hours to build, let's just say 10 hours. 
Uh, and when I build, when I do build commission pieces for people, I just say, hey, look, you're going to pay me the material price, and then I'm going to tell you the hours I have into it. You pay me what you think is fair. Um, it's a terrible way to do it, but because I'm doing these generally for friends and family, that's how I do it. Um, you know, so that usually ends up being pretty minimal as far as the hourly rate. Um, my sawmilling, however, you know, I, I charge a hundred dollars an hour on the sawmill. So my opportunity cost there is I'm losing money. If I do a commission piece, you know, if a commission yeah. piece is going to take me 10 hours, I might make 500 bucks at the end of the day. Well, I could have make it, I could have made a thousand bucks on the sawmill. Now I have other stuff in there. Um, but at the same time, that's me going and pulling the sawmill with somebody. So, you know, if I'm going to sawmill for 10 hours, that's going to be a thousand bucks. Okay. If I, at the end of the day, after blades and fuel, I might walk away with 750, 800 bucks in that same amount of time, a 10 hour sawmilling day sitting here at my place and I'm sawmilling my own lumber, I can probably whip out uh, 2000 board feet of walnut. Okay. That 2000 board feet of walnut after kiln drying and losing some to degradation through the drying process, I might yield 1500 board feet and I sell that 1500 board feet at $5 a board foot. So at that, at that instance, you know, my, my 10 hour day that I had sawmilling at a thousand dollars for the day has turned into a $7,500 day with all that walnut. Now there's, you know, inventory space and all that right. type of stuff you got to take into consideration, but that's kind of how I look at it. It's like, if I'm going to do something outside my normal work, um, Sawmilling for inventory is always the top of the list if I have the time to do it, uh, because that's the most valuable for me. Um, and, and again, you know, to don't want to make the point that while we are starving editors and designers, um, we don't have to do this outside of work for for the money. Um, we do it for I do it for the enjoyment of it, um, but it sure helps. Um, you know, pay for a skid loader when I do that. <laughs> so, um, or, you know, the, the other thing that I've been doing a little bit lately, um, side hustle wise is it's still lumber related, but it's not sawmilling. It's actually logging. So, you know, going through and, and harvesting a timber and saying, Hey, you know, we're pulling out a hundred walnut logs. So, you know, there is an opportunity cost there that you have to consider too. It's like if I pull out a hundred walnut logs, for example, the last load we sold that is going to China, um, we sold a hundred walnut logs. There was probably close to 3,500 board feet there. Um, and those, those 30, that 3,500 board feet. Um, some of those were low grade saw logs that I probably wouldn't even touch, but China buys them. Um, you know, I might, if I cut all of that, I probably would have yielded, you know, close to 15 to 20 grand, um, by cutting it, drying it, whatever, um, you know, paying for time on skid load or rental to, to help load and kind of speed up the process. Uh, but I don't have the time to cut that many walnut laws. So at that point, it was easier right. for us and quicker for us and better for us just to turn around and shove it in a shipping container and ship it to China. I hate to say it, and I know we're going to get flack for it, but there's a lot of walnut in Iowa. So um, that's kind of – you have to take an enjoyment factor into there too because I really enjoy the logging process. You know, Just going out through the timber with a chainsaw, whipping trees down – bucking the logs and dragging them out. I love that. Like absolutely love it. So I'll take a little bit of hit to my pocket, you know, opportunity cost wise to, to do that instead. So speaking of which though, I do have Walnut, White Oak and Sycamore still for sale. If anybody needs any, <laughs> <laughs> I got to get my garage space back somehow. <laughs> I think the other thing too, at least something that I consider when I'm doing stuff is, you know, especially stuff that's kind of out in the public sphere. Of course, 
that could be someone's home, but I'm more speaking of, you know, public spaces, the opportunity to have work in public spaces. Um, you know, I've very consciously not really gone through the process of making a website for myself and haven't really committed to doing any work for myself outside of work. So I don't necessarily have an inventory that I am proud enough of or even have to put online. And so to me, having the opportunity to work with people here in the community is like having a basically like a live portfolio essentially that everybody has access to. Yeah. And I, I really like that factor too. And it's something I think about when I do take on work, you know, do I want it to be, that's, that's why I prefer it to be more like custom pieces sure. that are out in the public sphere rather than just something that, you know, you could hire, you know, a contractor to do again, I'm not knocking contracting work whatsoever. It's just, there's people that do that for a living. They could do a lot more efficiently probably than I could. And so I like to do stuff that, I feel comfortable putting my name on and is in the public sphere that is again kind of just like a live portfolio of work so and i think it's just a good way to again contract more work for yourself so yeah well and that's you know it's it's funny because there is the the one type of work i would like to do uh the, the other part of kind of side hustle kind of not really but uh going and doing demos for some of the woodworking clubs Oftentimes they'll give you a, a small check for, for doing them. I, I like doing that stuff. So I do, I will do that. And I like doing that. That's fun. Um, I would, I think really like at some point during the next few years to get a couple of turning pieces into a gallery somewhere. I think that would be cool. Um, now yeah. it's one of those things that depending on what gallery you get into and stuff on uh you know how they price it the gallery prices your piece or if you price your piece or you know if if the gallery is just there to send send a buyer your way and then you pay a, a small percentage to the gallery whatever um i think that would be uh i would enjoy i think doing that type of work doing gallery pieces turnings not not furniture um uh, because Again, a large portion of this comes from enjoyment factor, and I really enjoy turning, so I'm going to do that before furniture most times. So, what do you think, Phil? See, I really, you know, I've had dreams in the past of doing woodworking as side hustle, and for me, it's always bumped up in terms of time and how do I price my work where I'm going to actually make money on it. And then it also knowing that that's taking away from family time, doing stuff yep. for myself, family yep. time, you know, family time and also building my own yes, projects, correct. you know, for my house or whatever. So, yeah, uh, I've I've done and will do things for other people and I enjoy doing that, but I would rather do it in a way of looking at it primarily as I have this place where I am and the skills that I have, and I'm going to use that to help someone else. Yes, sure. So I'm not necessarily looking at it as in terms of uh, profitability. So I will do it because I have these skills that not a lot of people do in our day and age, and I want to pass that along to other people. So that's primarily been through family members, um, through some friends, but, uh, the other thing that I look at it is uh, I like giving gifts to other people. Mm -hmm. So I will, I've, I look at it as I'm quote unquote saving money on Christmas gifts because I'm making something than it is for something else. And when I do have, you know, when like, you know, building something for a family member, it's usually I ask them to pay for the materials and a little extra just for, you know, supplies and yep. for a very small hourly rate or per piece rate or something like that. Um, and it's gotta be something that I'm in want, want to build. Yeah. You know, but I mean, that's, I don't know. I mean, you make a valid point earlier on in your response about, you know, the time we have outside of work and what's the value of that time, you know, whether you call it free time or family time or, you know, it can, you can call it whatever you want. And I think, Again, the way the way our time is valued here at work to me 
having free time outside of work has been really, really important. And so you do have to just kind of, again, reevaluate and think about, okay, if I'm going to take on a piece of work, I better, like Logan said, I, I better really like to do it. Um, of course, right. the financial aspect comes into it. But again, if you're not enjoying doing it, it doesn't matter if you're making a million dollars or five dollars, you know, it's just you just mentally you just don't want to do it. And so, right. It is just kind of look a, for ways to not do it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You'll kick it down the road as far as you can. And you'll, yeah, start to <laughs> hate woodworking, you know, or, you know, <laughs> start thinking irrational things about your state of mind and, yeah. how, you know, just just stuff like that. Yeah. So, well, you know, the, the other thing that I've thought about, like I made a couple of these little English minor planes and I always thought it'd be cool to, you know, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of these small plane makers coming up that are starting to make and sell their own, their own hand planes, kind of boutique type bespoke tool makers. Um, I was like, oh, that would be kind of fun to make planes and sell them and stuff. Um, kind of as just a fun little side hustle. But I'm like, ah, you know what? Like. One of those little English minor planes takes a solid seven, eight, nine hours to make, start to finish. I'm not, it's better for me to go around the sawmill. <laughs> like at the end of the day, like, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a fun, that's a fun thing you could do in the, in the winter time. If you have the time and not have kids and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, I've also, I have also been enjoying doing the whole, like, I, I sent Phil a picture the other day of my boxwood collection. Like I like the whole buying and selling model where it's like, Hey, if I can buy a, a batch of exotic wood and resell it for some profit, you know, great. You know, is it, you know, per hour, it's actually pretty decent money. Cause I don't put a whole lot of time I'm sitting on the couch with my phone. Might as well just post, make posts and sell it. You know, and then I guess got to take 10 minutes to box it up and ship it. So you know, that's kind of um, the way. I mean, and that's, to be honest with you, that is why I haven't been doing a ton of tool flipping lately. <laughs> My inventory of old tools is growing. It's expanding again. Um, <laughs> but I just haven't had time to put into fixing them up and selling them um, like I would like to. That may be a winter, again, another winter project. Um, but, yeah, it's there's ways to do it. Man, there are ways to do it. People want to want to do it. Right. Uh, I think that wraps it up for another episode of the Shop Notes podcast. If you have thoughts of your own, questions, comments, or smart remarks, I'd love to hear about them. You can send us an email, woodsmith at woodsmith.com. Uh, if you watch the podcast on our YouTube channel, you can leave comments there in the comments section, oddly enough. I uh, want to thank shaper tools for sponsoring today's episode they make that handheld cnc router it's called the shaper origin you can do all kinds of stuff with it from joinery and hardware installation cabinetry construction all that kind of stuff with speed and precision right now you can try it risk-free in your shop for 30 days if you'd like to find out how to do that visit shapertools.com thanks for joining us everybody and we'll see you next week on the shop notes podcast Bye.